Good morning again. It's good to see you all here. It's good to be in this sweltering, is that the right word? Sweltering position we're all in right now. I was reading the weather as I was doing my sound check this morning. It's just going to get hotter. So feel free to spread out like sticky shoulders touching against each other. I think it's probably church, but it doesn't have to be. So make yourself comfortable. I want to start this morning by uh, catching anybody up who, who may be joining us for the first time in this series, maybe joining us for the first time at all. Uh, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a series. So the series is Jesus Manifesto. It's a nine-week series, and this is week five. Uh, I want to give a, a little bit of an overview so that you understand where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Uh, in order to do that, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. So step one, there may be people who think we've skipped a step. Isn't there supposed to be scripture reading, right? See, I see a lot of people like, he's not supposed to be up here yet. Japheth trained us that we sing songs, then we hear a story, then he gets up and preaches. I've moved things around. Japheth sits back there now, so... A little power hungry today, maybe. Maybe pray for me a little bit. Now, I want to move this around because if we jump straight into uh, Colossians 2, we're going to have to come back around to it. And we can read scripture more than once. I'm not opposed to that. As a matter of fact, we're probably going to end up reading scripture like three or four times today just to kind of nail this thing home. But it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive deep into this. I'm going to really get into Bible study. I don't have a lot of stories that go along with it. And by a lot, I mean, I don't have a single story that goes with this sermon. I don't have any jokes except for like this part, which I'm sort of just telling you what to expect so that you know what's coming. Um, but I don't, I don't want us to just have the spoken word and not have that punch that comes with it. And so uh, Clark and I have coordinated. He's perched. He is ready. He is waiting. I see him studying right now. His game face is on for when we get to the spoken word. We haven't cut it. We just moved it in the service. So I want to do this. Let's talk for a second about uh, where we are and why we are where we are. That was fun to say. I hope it was as fun to listen to as it was for me to say that. Um, we need to talk about our author because Paul has a bunch of tendencies. Paul has things that he does in every single epistle. He does them over and over and over again. Uh, Paul is very good at uh, telling you something he wants you to know, and as soon as he has completed that thought, he says, okay, here's what I just told you. And then he'll say what he said again. And then just in case you missed it, the third time around, he'll be like, in case you missed this, here's a different way of saying what I've already said. So again, let me reiterate, this is a nine-week series, and Paul's just going to repeat himself over and over and over again. So before we get to the next thing that Paul has already said, let's talk a minute about Paul. Sound good? Good. Elias says we're good. I'm going to keep moving. Let's talk about Paul. Um, Paul is uh, an important character. He wrote a lot of the Bible. So when you flip to like the second half of the Bible, it's mostly just Paul. It's just Paul writing letters to friends and saying, hey, I heard your church is all messed up. Here's what you should do. And, oh, I hear your church is messed up now. Uh, here, here's what you should do. And he keeps doing that over and over again. But let's talk about who the person is who thinks he knows so much about all these churches that he's sort of helped 
create. And in order to do that, uh, I want to shout out the Chamberlains really quick. I, I lost where they are. Usually you sit, okay, yeah, yeah, thanks, Peter. I appreciate that. So I was invited with my wife uh, to go to Shakespeare in the Park as part of uh, the Boulder uh, university experience. It was the first time I had been, which is super exciting. I didn't think I liked Shakespeare. I was wrong. Shakespeare is great. I got to watch uh, the uh, performance of As You Like It. And within that play, there was a monologue. And apparently, everyone knows this monologue. I didn't know it because, again, I didn't think I liked Shakespeare. But it turns out, this monologue spoke directly to the sermon I had already planned to preach. So what I want to do is I actually want to read this monologue to you uh, to help you understand uh, where in life Paul is when he started to write this epistle. And I think it fits with how William Shakespeare starts to put it together. So this is from As You Like It. This is Act 2, Scene 7, with a character who is speaking. His name is Jay Queese, which if... Uh, Pastor Jennifer hadn't already given me the new nickname of M, I would want the nickname Jayquees, because that's fantastic. But I'll stick with M for now. So this is how it goes. It says, the whole world is a stage, and all the men and women merely actors. They have their exits and their entrances, and in his lifetime, one man plays many parts, with the ages of his life in seven acts. In the first act, he is the infant, crying and puking in the nurse's arms. And then he plays the whining schoolboy with his book bag and bright youthful face, creeping like a snail unwillingly to school. And then he is the lover, sighing like a furnace and writing sad songs about his beloved's eyebrows. Then he is the soldier, full of foreign curses and bearded like a leopard, quick to fight and jealously responding to any slight to his honor, seeking fleeting fame and reputation, even if it means putting himself in front of the cannon's mouth. Then... He plays the judge, with a nice round belly, lined with the bribes he's taken, with stern eyes and a beard cut to a respectable shape, full of wise sayings and everyday examples of his points. And in this way, he plays his part. In the sixth act, he shifts to the skinny, ridiculous old man, wearing slippers on his feet, glasses on his nose, and a money bag at his side. The stockings he has saved since his youth are now way too wide for his shriveled legs, and his big manly voice has become like a child's voice, squeaking and whistling. In the last scene of all, which ends this strange eventful story, the man enters his second childhood and goes mentally blank, without teeth, without eyes, without taste, without everything. The words of William Shakespeare. Life in seven acts, according to William Shakespeare. The first one is the infant. Act two is the whining schoolboy. Act three, the lover. Act four, the soldier. Act five, the judge. Act six, the old man. And act seven, the second childhood. Paul, when he writes the epistle to the Colossians, is the old man. Keep this in mind. That, that understanding of who Paul is helps understand why he writes the way he writes, to whom he writes, and the forcefulness in which he writes. Which leads us to the question, where is Paul? The book of Colossians was written from a prison cell inside of Rome, we believe somewhere around 62 AD. It's important because you should know that Paul dies in 66 AD. So there's four years left in his life. Now, he doesn't know that when he's writing, but 
to a certain extent, you're in a prison in Rome, you're starting to count towards the end rather than remembering the days that have come before. He was probably put in prison because he was persecuted by Nero. Nero, not a big fan of Christians. Not, not super into the whole Christian movement. And so Paul was, and they scooped him all up, and he got thrown into the prison. Which now we have to talk about, if we're going to talk about Paul, we can't forget this really important point. Does everybody know who Paul was before Paul was Paul? Saul, good. That could have been a really interesting question for somebody who doesn't know scripture or like a background, like who used to be Paul before Paul was Paul. Unfortunately, Paul used to have a different name. Paul's name was Saul before he became Paul. And in order to understand how Colossians hits the way it does, we need to talk about Saul for a second. And so Saul, we know, uh, highly educated because he wrote the book of Colossians in the common Greek of the day. So as people were reading this, they would have read it they would have read it at a high intellect. They would have understood that the words he was using, the vocabulary, the sentence structure, all of it points to this idea that Paul is highly educated. We know he was educated in Tarsus. We know that he was steeped in scripture throughout all of this. We know this because he was then moved to Jerusalem. He studied underneath Gamaliel, and then he became a Pharisee. Pharisees, pretty much known for being like super generous, really graceful people, right? No, no, absolutely not. The Pharisees knew the law. They enforced the law. They used the law in order to tell other people how to live. They used it to guard themselves against the ways not to live. And then they basically just walked around better than everybody else. They advanced all of their arguments through Scripture and through the law. This was Saul, all right? And Saul has this moment. Light hits him. He's on his donkey, knocks him down off the ground. Blindness has an interaction with Jesus Christ himself, and then he was like, yeah, all of this stuff that I used to be doing, I should probably stop doing that and do this thing instead, and pretty much ever since then, Paul has been stepping in and out of prisons, so it hasn't gone super well for him, but if you think back to William Shakespeare again, the seven uh, acts of man's life, Saul was the judge, Paul is the old man, so put those things in order. This will all start to come together. I'm just going to put a bunch of stuff kind of on the table, and then we'll move some things around, and it will start to make sense as we go through. So we know who Paul was. We know who Saul was. We know why Paul is in prison. But now we need to talk about what happened to Paul after his conversion since or before he wrote Colossians. So he has this moment with Jesus. Now he's in this prison cell. What has happened since then? He actually tells us step by step. If you uh, look at 2 Corinthians, it'll be up on the screen here. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. Paul decides he's just going to walk us through everything that he's ever been through so that the Corinthians can understand what it was. And this is what he says. He says, five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Does everybody understand that reference? 40 lashes minus one? Anybody know what happens on the 40th lash? You die. So they figured out if you hit somebody 40 times, that's too many. But if you hit them 39 times, you get them right close. Almost dead. Oh, but they still make it through. Paul's been through that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. It's a fun afternoon. Once I received a stoning. Does everybody know what stoning is? Think of it out of a bolder context. Think of it back then context. A stoning was meant to like put somebody in the middle, everybody gets a rock, and you throw rocks, 
until you're dead. Paul, writing, presently survived that. Another great afternoon for Paul. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides other things, I'm under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all of the churches. So let's recap that really quick. Five times, almost died from lashes. Three times beaten with a rod, survived one stoning, shipwrecked and lost at sea at least once, or shipwrecked three times, lost at sea once, and then on top of that, has an anxiety issue. If that wasn't enough, had to add his anxiety to the rest of it. This is Paul. This is Paul, the old man who has been through what he has been through, all in the name of the Lord. I want you to keep these things in mind, all right? This is the, the character that we're following. This is the author that we're listening to. Clark is going to come up now. He's going to read the spoken word, Colossians 2, verses 4 through 15. I want you to keep all of that in mind as you think of what you're hearing from the person that we collectively are hearing from in order to hear where Paul is coming from. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. 
Does it sound different once you know a little bit more about the author? Good, I'll take your blank stares as a no, which means I still have more work to do, which is good. I came prepared. Here's what I'd like you to do. If you do not have one already, you need a Bible today. I don't care what form it is. You can pick whatever translation you want. I have a preference. Uh, the screen is going to have a preference. You can follow along there. But uh, I'm just, I, this is like a fair warning. Class is in session because we are going to rip through this scripture in order to fully get it. Because here's the thing. We've heard this. We have this idea. Paul's repeated himself over and over and over and over again. And yet somehow there's something different enough about this section of scripture which allows me to preach a sermon that is from captivity, getting from captivity to the cross. So there's something in motion. There's something that is happening. And Paul seems to just be sitting in a prison cell being like, hey, it'll be all right. Stay strong. I have a broken back. I can't write. I've got Timothy writing for me. I hear your church is a little wonky. I have some ideas. And I think some of us are like, oh, that's cool that he, he wrote to them. Or if you've been listening to some of the, the sermons before this, there's a lot of parallels between this church in Colossae and the Adventist church at large. And you've heard four, you know, pretty direct sermons that, that build that parallel. Uh, I can't follow that rubric because Paul takes a sharp turn. Paul actually is not attacking these false teachings anymore. He's not having a conversation about what they're doing. Instead, he aims it directly at you. And now you have to deal with what's going on with you. But thankfully, Paul is also here to walk you through it. And so that's what we're going to do here. So if you've, I hope I've given you enough time. We're in the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. Like I said, not a lot of stories, not a lot of jokes. I'm just going to take everybody to school really quick. So before we get into what Paul wrote, we're going to grammar school for a second. All right? Some of you are in grammar school. Some of you just started school. I know Jonah just started school, and I feel really bad for him because it's still summer. I feel like, you, you know, when you see, like, Halloween stuff pop up at, like, the first week of August, and you think, it's too soon. I felt the same way about the back-to-school stuff at Target. I was just like, no, there's no way school is back. Some kids are already in school. And it's Saturday, and now everyone's in school. <laughs> Super exciting. Grammar School 101, I need to teach you some terms, or at least I need you to understand some terms, because like I said, Paul, highly educated, wrote to a highly educated group of people. Rebecca was up here last week saying they were a highly edu edu educated group, they sold purple dye, they were upper echelon, they knew the law, they knew the Torah, he was speaking to a group of people, he wasn't speaking to the lowest common denominator, he was aiming for the top. And so this book, this letter is written in the same way. So uh, you're going to think for a second, uh, I'm going through a lot of stuff and it's going to seem really tedious and you're going to think this kid that just got back from his master's degree suddenly just wants to talk about Greek, which, I mean, can you blame me? Three years at Andrews University, I got to use this stuff or what was the point? Help me, help me help you. Let's break this thing down. But I'm gonna make it super simple. You don't actually have to know any Greek. I'm not gonna use any Greek terms. 
My wife did a great job of using a Greek term that people are, I see like posting on Facebook, which is fantastic. I'm just gonna walk you through basic English vernacular because that's what Paul says. Paul says, I'm not trying to trick anybody. I'm not gonna turn this into philosophy. I'm not gonna use any tricks. He makes it super plain. But I think the problem is we're not used to listening to Paul. We just think like, well, we know the end of the story. Jesus wins and Paul's just like, yeah, Jesus is pretty cool. But there's more to it. There's a lot of depth in it. And so we're gonna break down a couple of terms you need to know. So uh, lesson one, sharpen your number twos. You don't need your Bible yet, but you will in a second. Does everybody know what the present tense is? Good. One person in the room knows what the present tense is. Again, I came prepared. The present tense, an action that exists only now. All right, so if something happens in the present tense, it is true right now, and it won't be true necessarily the moment before this or the moment afterwards. It's just something that happens in the present tense. Got it? We're gonna need more interaction here. If you don't get it, I'm gonna keep going. You're gonna get lost, and then it gets weird. Present tense. Oh, yes, now we're awake. Here we go. How about the past tense? Right, yeah, super easy, because we just did present tense. Now we just gotta think backwards. An action that started and was completed in the past. Good? Oh, yeah, this is great. Future tense. Right, super easy. Now that we've got the present tense, we can do past and we can do future. An action that will occur in the future. Future tense. Good to go? How about the progressive tense? Curveball. It's going to seem like the present tense, but it's not. The definition of the progressive tense is continuous ongoing action. It is true right now, it'll be true momentarily and a little bit further on. It is progressing. We are making progress in the present tense. Got that one? Good, it's getting harder, so don't get cocky, all right? Some of you are starting to say yes before I get to the next slide. Yes. How about the perfect tense, Aliyah? Yeah, I wasn't ready for that. The perfect tense. We're getting more complicated, but so is Paul. Perfect tense indicates a completed or perfected action. Something that is done in a way that it is fully completed. It's not something that will come up again. Something that is in the perfect has been perfected. So if it is done, then it is finished. Make sense? Fewer yeses this time. Starting to lose some of you. It's early. There's coffee in the back if you need it. How about an infinitive verb? An infinitive verb you probably know, you might just not know the term. An infinitive verb is a verb in its most basic form. It usually has the word to in front of it. To see, to jump, to know. All of those things are verbs. They have the word to in front of it. Yeah? Good, good. There will be a quiz at the end, so I hope you really got this. Because here it is. All right, that's all you have to know. I'm going to give you one more term later, but for now, just know present, past, future, progressive, perfect. An infinitive verb is a verb with the word to in front of it. Yeah? Ooh, ooh. I feel like that was a yeah, move on. Instead of a yeah, we get it. <laughs> it had a little sarcasm with it. Which is nice. I like that. I like that we're awake enough to be rude to each other. <laughs> Let's read Colossians 2 again. It'll be up on the screen, uh, and we're going we're gonna to walk through it. 
but I'm gonna start to highlight some stuff because the verbs are super important when Paul writes. The verbs are where the message is. If you understand the verbs, then you understand what Paul is trying to get at. So it starts with this. It says, I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Everybody see the verbs? I am saying. What tense? Present. I am saying. Present active. I am saying this. Paul is saying this now so that no one may deceive you. Does everybody see the verb? Deceive. What is that? It's an infinitive to deceive so that no one will deceive you in the future potentially, in the present now, and maybe in the past to deceive. So in this case, Paul is using it as a de an infinitive to deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. Did we see the two verbs there? The word am? What tense? Present. So what do we have so far? Just a bunch of present verbs. Paul is talking about the right now. I want you to focus on right now. When you hear me say the words I am saying, it is the word to be, but presently I am. He, she is. Paul is in this moment with you in spirit. I am presently with you. I rejoice and see your morale and firmness of your faith. There are two infinitive verbs there, to rejoice and to see. Infinitive in its most basic form. With me so far? Good, that was, that was the easy part. Now we're gonna get a little tricky. Paul says later, it says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Everybody see the verb there? I feel like it's super easy. I have a cheat sheet. If you don't have it, it's right here. I highlighted other pieces. Also, if you're holding a pew Bible, I don't know, I didn't ask Jay for this beforehand. Can we mark them up if people have pens? I think you should mark them up. So that somebody, you know, take it home if you want to, but if not, somebody will flip through and go, I wonder what all these underlying words are. You're teaching somebody in the future. Future tense, teaching, to teach in the future. The word received, what tense? Past. Don't let that slip by. Because Paul is basing his entire argument on that verb. Because in the past, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live verb in its infinitive form. It even has the word to, to live your lives in him. And then we get three in a row, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. I think I said three in a row, there's four there. What tends all four of those verbs? Good, I heard every word I taught you. Present, future, past. Past, now we're getting a little bit louder in the past tense. Past tense, rooted in the past, built in the past, established in the past, taught in the past. Paul is no longer talking about what's happening right now. He is shifting the focus from the things that are happening in this room and he is taking you back to a time that has happened in the past, something that was started and completed in the past. Are you rooted currently in Christ? Probably not, says Paul, but you used to be. You used to be rooted. You were built up then in Christ. You were established in the faith then, and you were taught in the past, and now, present tense, abounding in thanksgiving. So far, so good? This is gonna start to come together really quick here. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. And there you have the infinitive verb to see at the beginning, and the word takes in this case is a whole bunch of things, so it's actually future perfect progressive. Don't worry about that one. Don't worry about it. That's the tricky one. It doesn't actually come into play here. He's just basically saying, uh, somebody's here to hurt you, I'm making sure they don't succeed. And here's what he wants you to get from it. For in him, the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells. What tense? The word dwells. Present. The spirit of God is present in you presently. And you have come. Anybody want to test that one out? Have come? Good guess. You're, you're on the right track, Matt. It's present perfect. It is something that is true now that was perfected in the moment coming in. So think about this. Every, all the good work you did has brought you to this point. Presently, you have completed it. Now that you are here in this fullness of him who is the head of every ruler and every authority, let's stop there. Take a deep breath because everything that happens from this point forward is meant to knock you off of your chair. Because I want this to be clear. He is talking to a room of people who believe present actively that what they are supposed to be doing is fasting, abstaining from alcohol, going to all the religious festivals in order to appease the gods that they don't know based on teachings from people they don't know. But because everybody's doing it, they think there's a certain line they have to cross and not cross and stay in between it, and if they starve themselves enough, they can do everything they need in order to be saved. Those are the people listening to Paul give this next section, and it's intended to knock them out of their chairs. It says this, in him you were circumcised. What tense? Past. With a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. There's a verb putting there. I'm going to come back to it. When you were buried, what tense? Past tense. With him in baptism, you were also raised. Past. With him through faith in the power of God who raised. Past. Him from the dead. And when you were dead, this is a verb, to die. Past. You have already died. You are therefore dead then. Because we're talking about your baptism then. You were dead in that moment. In trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made past you alive together with him. And when he forgave past us all of our trespasses, erasing, let me come back to that one, the record that stood past against us with his legal demands, he set past this aside, nailing it to the cross. Let me come back to nailing. He disarmed past, you're getting good at this, the rulers and authorities and made past a public example of them triumphing over them in it. I feel like I, I didn't get the amen that I was 
driving towards. Let's try that again. Let's see if this, this starts to come into focus. Let me read this in a different way. There's a group of people who are convinced that in order to be saved, there is something they must do to earn the respect and love of the gods they don't believe in. And Paul is here to promote a God who has a list of things he has already done. So let's try this. In him, you were already circumcised. You are not being circumcised. You are not planning to become circumcised. You have finished your circumcision. This is a spiritual circumcision. And by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried, not going to be buried, you are not being actively buried. You have already been buried with him from the dead. Uh, I'm sorry, with him in baptism. You were also raised. You are not being raised. You are not soon to be raised. You have already been raised with him through faith and power of God who raised, not going to be raised not soon to be raised, not currently being raised. You were already raised from the dead. And when you were dead, not dying, not soon to die, not under the threat of dying, you are already dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made, not is making, not will soon make you, but has already made you alive together with him. When he forgave, not will forgive, not is currently forgiving, not contemplating whether or not to forgive you, but already forgave us all of our trespasses. God is erasing the record that stood, not is standing, not will stand against you, not is something you have to jump over later, but God, it already stood against us with its legal demands. And so God set, not is setting, not will soon set. He has already set you aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed not soon to disarm, not as thinking about disarming, not as actively disarming. God already succeeded at disarming the rulers and authorities and made, not will make, not will soon make, is not thinking about making. He has already made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Get it now? The message is in the verbs. There's a group of people sitting in a room thinking they have something to prove to gods they don't believe in. And Paul starts to tell them a story that is already done. Can anybody find themselves in the story? Can anybody find their action? What was our part in the story? What was the thing that we did? Nothing. There's nothing to look at. If you're going to look for one thing, the only thing you participated in was the word dead. All you had to do was decide to die to sin. And because you made that choice in the past, present, active, progressive, you are dead to sin. So what Paul is saying is all of this work you're putting in to try and do the thing that you think I want you to do so that I'll like you more, so that we can hang out in heaven later, you have no part in. Your reality check is this. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing you are actively doing. 
there is nothing you can ever do in the future that will affect God's relationship with you. God loved you so much that he prearranged for all of these things to be taken care of before you got here in case this moment comes up. It's this grace that can never add up, right? And somehow, you still want to have a relationship with me? God said yes in the past for today. There is nothing you have ever done. There is nothing you are currently doing. There is nothing you can do in the future to affect what God has already done. He is far too powerful, and you are not strong enough. So your diet doesn't matter. I could keep going. We could talk about the day you worship on, or we can have a conversation about veganism or swimming on the Sabbath. Your call, pick your version, pick the one thing you grew up with, and then read Paul. You've got nothing. There's another hidden treasure. There's, there's four of them here. I said I was going to come back to four verbs. You got this idea of putting off the body of the flesh of the circumcision. Later he says, erasing the record that stood against us, nailing it to the cross, triumphing over them in it. Anybody want to take a stab at what those verbs are? I heard progressive. I heard perfect. It ends in an I-N-G. So the first sentence, I am saying, we decided was what? Present. Do you think these are present? This is where the fun part of Paul's education starts to come in. Paul actually uses the present perfect progressive. The definition of present perfect progressive is an action that began in the past, continues in the present, and will continue into the future. Try this on for size. By putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, God did that in the past. He's doing it for you today. He will do it again for you tomorrow as much as you need it. When he forgave us all of our trespasses, erasing. He erased them in the past. He erased them today. He will erase them tomorrow. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He did it yesterday. He'll do it today. He's got plans to do it again tomorrow. After he made a public example of all of those rulers and authorities, he was triumphing over them in it. He triumphed then. He is triumphing now. He will do it again tomorrow. The present perfect progressive reality of the gospel is that it was true yesterday it is true today it will be true tomorrow Paul is highly educated but he is speaking to us through this book to remind us that it was true for him it's true for the Colossians it's true for the Boulder Church and the reality is this all of these verbs have an, a little added piece when you were baptized with him, when you died to sin in him. All of these things come with that tag, which means this, all of those verbs you think that are so cool and so necessary and so needed for your salvation, not a single one of them mattered, and God was still with you in it. 
which means the second reality check for the day is you have never been alone a day in your life. And the present, perfect, progressive reality is that you weren't alone yesterday. You will not be alone today. And God has no plans to leave you alone tomorrow. The term God Emmanuel means God with us. Because God is with us, everything we do is done with God. And if you are not alone and you live in the fullness of Christ, then even as Paul says, I am with you in spirit, even though I'm not with you in flesh, Paul was able to say that to the Colossians because he was in Christ. Christ was in him and he became Christ to the people who needed it. Class is over. Here's your final exam. In a moment, we're gonna sing a song, but before we sing the song, I wanna talk about what you're gonna sing before you sing it. And I also wanna give you an opportunity to respond to what you may have heard today. Because I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what every single person in this room is going through, but potentially there is something that has happened here in this space, the spirit moved, and you thought to yourself, that thing that Paul's talking about, I want that. And I'm starting to buy in. There's something we do at the end of every service here at Boulder Church, and it comes from this orange card. And I think we hear it just like we hear Paul. We start to hear like the same thing over and over again, and it starts to become different. And we think like, oh, it's Harper this time, so it's cute. And that's the takeaway, and it is. Harper's super cute. And she's got flowers in her hair today. You're gonna love the blessing. But let's read it for a second. It says, may Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender. May Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care for all people. May Jesus bless you with courage that you will dare to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. And may Jesus bless you with the power to make Jesus all. Can you find the verbs in our blessing? What is it? There's lots of them. What tense are they in? Present-ish, right? The word may, what does it mean? May you go forward and have a great day. Am I saying have a great day right now? I'm talking about it in the future. There's this thing that Harper is gonna read to us today and she's going to tell the entire room, go out in the future, taking the words you have presently and progress them into the world as you see it. And in order to do that, to tell the story of Jesus, you don't have to tell your story. You just have to talk about all the things that Jesus already did. And in order to do that, you're gonna need gentleness, you're gonna need strength, you're gonna need compassion and care, you're gonna need courage, you're gonna need openness, understanding and respect. You're gonna need some serious power because Paul's underlying message is that it doesn't matter what you do, Jesus has already done it, all of it. It's finished, perfect, completed never to be needed to be opened again. You wanna to respond to today, you wanna to be a part of what this is, you're gonna read, uh, read these words up on the screen and I'm gonna invite you to stand and be a part of the response to what we're doing here today.
There are active present verbs in the first verse. Worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of every praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. Present, active, God is present and he is worthy. Holy there is no one like you. Holy there is none beside you. Is present, active. And then we're gonna sing a hook. And it's gonna be, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. Future, yours, potentially yours. If today in this moment you say, God, I'm in and I want everything that Paul's talking about. And because he has already done it and there's nothing more you can do because he is already worthy, already holy, and already with you, you're invited to be a part of it. No added costs.